Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, September 20th, 2012. I just can't believe I have to do an entire segment on Joel Osteen's new book, I Declare. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Let's just get right to it. we got a lot of uh, ground that we've got to cover today. Um, three things we're going to do today. Three things. That's it. It's, it's, it's a fighting for the faith trifecta. First of all, have you all been hearing the, uh, the so-called news that somebody found a papyrus that, uh, that it's from the 4th century that says that Jesus said he had a wife? And it's like, oh, really? Okay, so yeah, we're going to take a look at that. In fact, I'm going to let Al Mohler do all the heavy lifting on this today. Uh, But I mean, first of all, when you see things like this, I mean, if you understand church history, um, it's pretty clear, pretty clear. This is from a Gnostic text. I mean, I, in my uh, Defense Against the Dark Arts section of my library, which seems to be growing by the day, um, I just picked up, hang on a second here. Yeah, I got to clear my throat. Just picked up Perry Noble's new book, Unleash. Oh, what a train wreck. <laughs> yeah, <it's> a, <laughs> some, expect over the next few weeks we're probably <laughs> going to be having uh, Perry Noble updates regarding his new book, Unleash. Yeah, he's unleashed something, but it, <laughs> it ain't biblical Christianity. It's, it's more like a mutant virus that's capable of destroying and... and <laughs> Oh man, yeah, he's unleashed something. Anyway, so I'm off topic. But he, so here's the deal: when you see news stories about uh, you know things that have to do with Gnostic gospels, understand that Gnosticism arose at the I mean, literally as a parallel to uh, apostolic historic Christianity. Uh, historic Christianity has known about Gnosticism. In fact, the Apostle John 
wrote <laughs> practically wrote everything he wrote against the Gnostics. Uh, the the Gospel of John itself is written with a very hard anti-Gnostic edge to it. And if you understand what Gnosticism is, you sit there and go, "Wow, I can see it clearly." Uh, the the Epistle of First John, I mean, really sharp anti-Gnostic edge to it. Read Eusebius, uh, you know, uh, early church history and, uh, and the early Gnostics and the apostles' reaction to the, uh, the Gnostics. I mean, we've known about Gnosticism for a long time, and they've, they've, the Gnostics developed later their own, quote, Gospels. You know, you've heard of the Gnostic Gospels, and uh, they have all kinds of bizarre traits in it. But see, here's the thing. Christianity has nothing to worry about from a third century papyrus fragment. Let me can I put this in perspective for you. Okay. I'm just doing color commentary prior to going into the Al Muller bit. Um, let me just put this in perspective. Okay. If you live in the United States of America and listen, I understand that literally folks, when you look at our stats, our fastest out, uh, growing audience segment for uh, fighting for the faith is outside of the United States. I mean, yes, the, our United States uh, audience is growing, uh, but the, the fastest growing segment is uh, listeners outside of the United States. So I, yeah, I understand that uh, fighting for the faith is not an American uh, per se um, thing. In fact, when we last checked our geostats for Pirate Christian Radio, we were listened to regularly in at least 128 um, countries, which is was just mind-boggling to me. Uh, absolutely mind-boggling. Anyway. Off topic again. <laughs> it's going to be hard. Today I'm suffering from temporary ADHD. Just want to let you know, and I'm not taking meds to fix this problem. Anyway, so coming back to the thing. Okay, so American history. Okay, if you live in the United States, then you're familiar with American history and how we had colonists come to North America, how those colonists uh, were uh, pretty much revolted, pretty much flat out revolted against the British Empire in the in the, you know the in 1776 the uh, American Revolution, right? Okay, so you, 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 for those of you living in the United States, you're very conversant with men like George Washington, uh, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and, you know, and others, right? You, you're familiar with these guys and their stories, okay? And all of that took place what 230 something years ago. Right. Okay. So this would be the equivalent of basically this, this finding, by the way, um, this would be the equivalent of finding a, um, a fragment on a piece of blue ruled paper that you could buy at like, you know, CVS pharmacy or something like that, that would, that a, a fragment on, on blue ruled paper, that said, and George Washington said, and then it and then it says something about his gay lover, right? Okay, you sit there and go, what? George Washington had a gay lover? We found, yes, right, we found a 21st century fragment uh, written on blue-ruled paper uh, that says something very interesting, that George Washington was talking about his gay lover. And <laughs> you sit there and go, what? Really? So let me see that fragment. It's on blue-ruled paper. You, you get there. Yes, but look, it says it's a it's a mention here of of George Washington's gay lover, and you go, <laughs> you, but it's on blue ruled paper, and, and this is a twenty first century. You understand how far removed this piece of this fragment is from like the Revolutionary War, and see and see that's the thing is that the this this so called fragment written in Coptic uh, on a papyrus. 
which you, it's clearly coming from a Gnostic text, um, it, you know, it, it has the same historical weight as you know a fragment found on blue ruled paper from the 21st century where it says, and George Washington mentioned the name of his, of his gay lover. Because here's the deal. Um, the, the men who knew um, George Washington never mentioned that he had a proclivity for having um, those types. Of, you understand what I'm saying? So you know, there's no historical evidence going back to the actual period and uh, a word that would say that George Washington had such a thing. And same thing with Jesus, okay? When we look at the Gospels, what are the Gospels? The Gospels are their eyewitness biographies about Jesus, okay? Gospel of Matthew written originally in Hebrew, and there's clearly Hebrew themes in this thing, which is, I mean, it's fantastic when you understand it, but uh, originally written in Hebrew, um, and the Gospel of Matthew written by who? Levi the tax collector. And who was he? He was an eyewitness to not everything, okay, because Levi was not there when Jesus was born, uh, when the Magi visited, you know, stuff like that. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Jesus's ministry on to his death and resurrection, um, Matthew was a, was a full on eyewitness of the things that he records. Okay. Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke was not written by an eyewitness, but was compiled by interviewing the eyewitnesses. If you're not sure about the, the under, you're not sure about this, just read the opening verses of the Gospel of Luke and of Acts. I mean, and Luke lays it out for you. These things, you know, he investigated, he talked with, he, you know, he put together an account by talking to these people. And uh, who did uh, Luke travel with? Luke was a com- was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Okay, so Luke is a historian who interviewed the eyewitnesses and put together an account. Um, and church history tells us that the Apostle Paul thought that his his gospel was, you know, was just brilliant. Okay. Now, Gospel of Mark. Church history tells us the Gospel of Mark was pretty much the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter, right? Okay, so Mark himself, you know, you know, basically compiling this from Peter's, you know, stump speech regarding Jesus. And then the Gospel of John, written by an eyewitness. And what the occasion for the writing, by the way, if you understand church history, was specifically to counter the errors and the heresies that were already cropping up and the false teaching regarding Jesus uh, that was already cropping up in his lifetime. In fact, um, when you read Martin Chemnitz's examination of the Council of Trent, by the way, that's a brilliant view. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm looking at my library here. Okay, yes, but there's four volumes to this. Um, if you have not read... For those of you advanced theological students, maybe that may be put it this way. If you want a really good, solid refutation of salvation by works and uh, the, uh, the, the, the human man-made doctrine slash traditions of Roman Catholicism, especially coming out of uh, the Council of Trent where the Roman Catholic Church anathematized the, the gospel itself. Yeah, no kidding. You've got to read Martin Chemnitz's uh, the examination of the of the uh, Council of Trent. It's in four volumes. I think you can get it on uh, if you have a Logos Bible software. Uh, they have a package that you can buy it for for pretty cheap. Uh, I know that volume one is available for in Kindle. But any but oh man, that is that's like must read material for any serious theological student. I don't care if you're a Calvinist, a Baptist, I, or Lutheran. You you need to read that. Uh, and but uh, Martin Chemnitz. 
uh, notes all of this stuff uh, regarding the history of John's gospel being written and specifically was written against all this. He talks about it in uh, volume one of his uh, of his uh, examination of the Council of Trent. So (laughs) again, I'm off on a tangent. So anyway, so all of that being said, all of that being said. So, you know, listen, okay, you can trust the, the, the gospels They're They are written by eyewitnesses. The people who knew Jesus wrote about him. And did they mention even a single solitary word about Jesus having a wife? Not even one. You want to know why? Because he didn't have a wife. (laughs) Ta-da! There it is. That's the reason why. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, these later Gnostic um, so-called Gospels, yeah, they're as historically reliable as a Marvel comic book. You, you know, uh, the, you're regarding Thor and, the, and Captain America and stuff like that. that. I mean, that's that's literally just how historically reliable they are. Okay, so we, now all of that's to say, here's what we're going to do today. In just a minute, <laughs> I'm going to get to Al Mohler's piece that he wrote and published uh, regarding the whole Jesus having a wife thing. He just takes C4 explosives, hooks it up to the idea, and it seriously steps back about a few hundred feet and then just hits the plunger and goes, boom, it's gone. I mean, obliterated, decimated. We'll take a break after that, and then what we're going to do is we're going, oh, man, I can't believe i got to do this. Joel Osteen's new book came out, and uh, it's entitled I Declare, and uh, we're going to be listening to his interview. I think he did on CBS News uh, on the day that the book was released. He's out. He's in New York City, you know, doing the uh, the book uh, promoting thing. Anyway, so uh, Osteen's new book, I declare, we're going to listen to that segment. And what what I want to do is offer a biblical counter teaching to the whole concept because as we listen to Osteen, I think it's important that you ask yourself these questions. All right, here's the question. What does Osteen really believe is the problem that we as as humans face? Okay, what is his problem, and what's the solution that he offers to the problem? Okay, this will determine whether or not his doctrine is Christian or not. And then I'm going to offer a counter teaching, biblical uh, teaching, in order to demonstrate just how off the mark I mean his ideas are. Then we'll take a break. Hour number two, we're going to be going to Celebration Church in Austin, Texas. Um, The pastor there, his name is Joe Champion. And if you're familiar with uh, Easter of 2012, then you remember that, hey, wait a second, Celebration Church, Austin, Texas, wasn't that the church that Tim Tebow uh, came for Easter? Yeah, it it was. Um, Which, by the way, I just want to let everybody know that I am so happy that Tim Tebow is a backup quarterback this year. (laughs) Because then we don't have to deal with all the mess that we had to deal with last year. Anyway, so so it, it, he doesn't seem to get a lot of game time. Anyway, which I'm perfectly fine with. Um, you know. Anyway, so uh, we're we're going to be listening to a sermon entitled "Out of the Box," and this is one of the stranger sermons I've reviewed. And the reason I say that is because this guy is going to try to use. Galatians, the concept of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, you know, counter to, you know, Judaism, a Judaizing legalism to support a false teaching that he's promoting. And it's a flat out false gospel. And it's 
it's mind-boggling, and, and it all lies in the definitions. And so it's it, this is a slippery critter. This one takes, you know, on the discernment scale as far as, you know, difficulty. Some of the sermons we review here are like, you don't even, you know, you just have to have a brain and know how to use it. <laughs> and so those would be like discernment scale level one. I mean, you don't even have to be biblically in, in tune. You just have to know how to think. The discernment level one. And then super, you know, slippery would be like 10. This is like a six and a half, seven on the discernment scale. And uh, and the trick is uh, you, you have to pay real close attention to definitions. And once you start trying to pin down and nail down the definitions, then you're fine. So anyway, that's what we're going to do on today's edition of <laughs> For the Faith. And it took me all this because I, I kept getting, off, getting myself off time. Like I said, apparently today I'm suffering from temporary ADHD. I don't know how where that came from. So, all right, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Let's go ahead and do our Albert Muller news here. From the albertmuller.com website, the um, headline reads, The Gospel of Jesus' Wife When Sensationalism Masquerades as Scholarship. Yeah, that's right. When Sensationalism Disguise, uh, masquerades as scholarship. Al Mohler writes, he says, the whole world changed on Tuesday, at least that is what many would have us believe. Smithsonian Magazine, published by the Smithsonian Institution, declares that the news released Tuesday was, quote, apt to send jolts through the world of biblical scholarship and beyond. <laughs> Albert Mohler, this is his <clears throat> commentary on that. Really? <laughs> Really? All right. So what was this news? Well, Professor Karen King of Harvard Divinity School announced at a conference in Rome that she had identified an ancient papyrus fragment that includes the phrase, quote, Jesus said to them, my wife, within hours, headlines around the world advertise the announcement with the headlines like ancient papyrus could be evidence that Jesus had a wife. <clears throat> That'd be from the Telegraph in the UK. The Smithsonian article states that, quote, the announcement at an academic conference in Rome is sure to send shockwaves through the Christian world. The magazine's breathless enthusiasm for the news about the papyrus probably has more to do with the advertising, uh, with its advertising upcoming television documentary than anything else. But the nation's most prestigious museum can only injure its reputation with this kind of sensationalism. A fragment of a text even more in, in, and an even more fragmentary argument. That's the name of this next section. So what Karen King revealed on Tuesday was a tiny papyrus fragment with Coptic script on both sides. On one side, the fragment includes about 30 words on eight fragmentary lines of script. The New York Times described the fragment as, quote, smaller than a business card with eight lines on one side in black ink legible under a magnifying glass. The lines are all fragmentary with the third line reading, deny Mary is worthy of it. And then next, the next reading, quote, Jesus said to them, my wife. The fifth states, she will be able to be my disciple. The papyrus fragment, believed to be from the 4th century, was delivered to Professor King by an anonymous source who secured the artifact from a German-American dealer who had bought it years ago from a source in East Germany. 
Uh-oh, yeah, bad pedigree there. As news reports made clear, the fragment is believed by many to be an authentic text from the 4th century. Let me highlight that again. From the 4th century, though two of three authorities originally consulted by the editors of the Harvard Theological Review expressed doubts. Such a find would be interesting to be sure, but hardly worthy of the international headlines. The little piece of ancient papyrus with its fragmentary lines of text is now, in the hands of the media, transformed into proof that Jesus had a wife and that she was most likely Mary Magdalene. Professor King would bear personal responsibility for most of this overreaching. She has called the fragment nothing less than, quote, the gospel of Jesus' wife, a title the Boston Globe rightly deemed mm, provocative. That same paper reported that Professor King decided to publicize her findings before additional tests could verify the fragment's authenticity because she, quote, feared word could leak out about its existence in a way that sensationalized its meaning. Seriously? King was so concerned about avoiding sensationalism that she titled the fragment The Gospel of Jesus' Wife? This is sensationalism masquerading as scholarship. One British newspaper notes that the claims about a married Jesus seem more worthy of fans of Dan Brown's fictional work, The Da Vinci Code, than real-life Harvard professors. If the fragment is authenticated, the existence of this little document will be of interest to the historians of the era, but it is insanity to make the claims now running through the media. Professor King claims that these few words and phrases should be understand as presenting a different story of Jesus, a different gospel. She then argues that the words should be read as claiming that Jesus was married, that Mary Magdalene was likely his wife. She argues further that while this document provides evidence of Jesus's marital status, the it's not like it's not like they found Jesus's marriage license anyway. Good night. The phrases do not necessarily mean he was married. More than anything else, she argues against the claim that Christianity is a unified body of commonly held truths. Those familiar with Karen King's research and writings will recognize the argument. Her 2003 book, The Gospel of Mary Magdala, Jesus and the First Woman Apostle, argued that another text from the era presented Mary Magdalene as the very model for apostleship. The thread that ties all these texts and arguments together is the 1945 discovery of some 52 ancient texts near the town of Nag Hammadi in Egypt. These texts are known to scholars as Gnostic literature. By the way, I have this in my in my library. It's bizarre reading, but uh, you know any good theologian needs to understand his Gnosticism, not because he needs to practice it, because he needs to be able to refute it. Anyway, <clears throat> sorry, that was me. <clears throat> we continue. The texts present, uh, present heretical narratives and claims about Jesus and his message, and they have been a treasure trove for those seeking to replace Orthodox Christianity with something different. Several ambitions drive this effort. Feminists have sought to use the Nag Hammadi text to argue that women have been sidelined by the Orthodox tradition, and that these Gnostic texts prove that women were central to the leadership of the early church, perhaps even superior to them. Actually, <laughs> which is hilarious, by the way, because if you are familiar with the Gospel of Thomas, <clears throat> I, the Gospel of Thomas claims that women can't be saved unless God changes them into men. 
that's what that Gnostic gospel teaches. So it's weird that they would say that. Anyway, <clears throat> we continue. Others have used the Nag Hammadi text to argue that Christianity was div- was a diverse movement marked by few doctrinal concerns until it was hijacked by political and ecclesiastical leaders who constructed theological or- orthodoxy as a way of establishing churchly power in the Roman Empire and then stifling dissent. Still others argue that Christianity's moral prohibitions concerning sexuality and especially homosexuality were part of this forced orthodoxy, which, they argue, was not the essence of true Christianity. More than anything else, many have used the Nag Hammadi text as leverage for their argument that Christianity was originally a way of spirituality centered in the teachings of a merely human Christ not a message of salvation through faith in a divine Jesus who saves sinners through the atonement he accomplished in his death and resurrection. Professor King, along with Princeton's Elaine Pagels, has argued that the politically powerful leaders who established what became Orthodox Christianity silenced other voices, but that these voices now speak through the Nag Hammadi text and other Gnostic writings. Writing together, King and Pagels argue that, quote, The traditional history of Christianity is written almost solely from the viewpoint of the side that won, which was remarkably successful in silencing or distorting other voices, destroying their writings, and and suppressing any who disagreed with them as dangerous and obstinate heretics. King and Pagels both reject traditional Christianity, and they clearly prefer the voices of the heretics. They argue for the superiority of heterodoxy over orthodoxy. In the Smithsonian article, article, King's scholarship is described as, quote, a kind of sustained critique of what she called the master story of Christianity, a narrative that casts the canonical text of the New Testament as a divine revelation that passed through Jesus in an unbroken chain to the apostles and their successors. Church fathers, ministers, priests, and bishops who carried these truths into the present day, which, by the way... um. Read the church fathers. <laughs> Read them. <laughs> it's just if you're not sure what I'm talking about, just go pick up the Antinicene Fathers, Volume One. Read Clement. Read Irenaeus. Read you know. Read Papias. Read these guys, and you'll realize that's well what they're arguing against is exactly what happened. I mean, that just read the church fathers. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, so King actually argues against the use of the term of terms like heresy and even Gnostic, claiming that the very use of these terms gives power to the forces of orthodoxy and normative Christianity. Nevertheless, she cannot avoid using the terms herself, even in the titles of her own book. She told Ariel Sabar of the Smithsonian, you're talking to someone who's trying to integrate a whole set of heretical literature in, <laughs> into the standard history. That's quite a confession. <clears throat> Muller continues, says, Those who use Gnostic texts like those found at Nag Hammadi attempt to redefine Christianity so that classical, biblical, orthodox Christianity is replaced with a very different religion. The Gnostic texts reduce Jesus to the status of a worldly teacher who instructs his followers to look within themselves for the truth. These texts promise salvation through enlightenment, not through faith and repentance. Their Jesus is not the fully human and fully divine Savior, and there is no bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. Were these writings found at Nag Hammadi evidence of the fact that the early church opposed and attempted to eliminate what it understood to be false teaching? Of course, that is what the church said it was doing and what the apostles called upon the church to do. 
the believing church did not see heresy as an irritation. It saw heterodoxy as spiritual death. Those arguing for the superiority of the Gnostic text deny the divine inspiration of the New Testament and prefer the heterodox teachings of the Gnostic heretics. Hauntingly, the worldview of the ancient Gnostics is very similar in many respects to various worldviews and spiritualities around us today. Now, I would add to this what he just said in the church today. By the way, um, what I would recommend, if you haven't already heard it, listen to this week's episode of The White Horse Inn. Um, it's, I think it's called American Spirituality. You, you, need to, you need to listen to it. It's a fantastic piece on American Gnosticism. And, and what Dr. Mueller points out here is absolutely true. We continue, though. The energy behind all this is directed to the replacement of Orthodox Christianity, its truth claims, its doctrines, its moral convictions, its visions of both history and eternity with a secularized, indeed Gnosticized, new version. Just look at the attention this tiny fragment of papyrus has garnered. In few, in a, it, its few words and broken phrases are supposed to cast doubt on the New Testament and the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity, a tiny little fragment which even if authentically from the 4th century is placed over and against the four New Testament Gospels all written within decades of Jesus' earthly ministry and like I've pointed out um, written by eyewitnesses or through uh, interviewing the eyewitnesses the so-called Gospel of Jesus' wife not hardly this is sensationalism masquerading as scholarship nevertheless do not miss what all this really represents an effort to replace biblical Christianity with an entirely New faith. That's absolutely what is going on. Dr. Mueller, fantastic piece. And by the way, that fragment does not cast any, I mean, it doesn't have any weight compared to the New Testament um, uh, biographies written by the eyewitnesses. So Christianity, biblical Christianity has nothing to worry about here for real. The problem is, is that this little sensationalistic fragment is being used by the devil to cast doubt on biblical Christianity. And if you don't know what your faith is and what what it's based upon, the the true evidence for historic Christianity, well, then you're susceptible to tricks of the devil of this kind and others. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my, well, actually, subscribe to me on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back with a Joel Osteen update. And I'm going to do a biblical teaching to counter this. This is just crazy. Anyway, we'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church. 
Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build a God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes! My goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent! Excellent! Now for the final step. You have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All 
right, we're back. Uh, warning, the uh, only historical information that we can truly trust regarding Jesus is written by the eyewitnesses found in the New Testament in what's called the Gospels. All the other stuff, it isn't authoritative. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, next section. Here we go. When I'm feeling lonely, sad Sad as I can be, all by myself, an uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw don't have a flaw. My shiny teeth and me. My shiny teeth that twinkle just like the stars in space. My shiny teeth that sparkle add a beauty to my face. My shiny teeth that glisten just like a Christmas tree. You know they walk the miles just to see me smile. Shiny Teeth and Me. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, Chip Skylark <laughs> and uh, My Shiny Teeth and Me. That's our uh, Joel Osteen update music. All right. So if, it, uh, unless you've been <clears throat> experiencing a media fast, <laughs> which, by the way, is probably a good idea. Um, but if you're going to – by the way, if you're going to really fast, okay, listen. One of the things that bugs me, okay, fasting is a fantastic thing, by the way. Um, if you're going to fast, number one, don't advertise it to everybody. Number two, if you're going to fast, fast. Don't <laughs> – you know, don't don't say, oh, I, here I'm going to fast uh, by not watching Joel Osteen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or, you know, I, I'm going to fast from the television. You know, that's just, that's just smart. Okay, listen. Less television, by the way, less television means less stress. I'm just saying, you know, anybody who's like over the top stressed out and just worried about everything there is, turn the television off. Just say enough is enough and, you know, and you don't get caught up in all the media cycles and just... There's freedom in that. Just saying. Anyway, but in case, case you've been on a media fast or you're under a rock or like me, you don't watch a lot of television. But even without that, you know, my wife, she goes to the gym in the morning and she comes back. She, Did you know that Joel Osteen has a new book? It's all over the news. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. I just saw it, too. Because <laughs> it's my job to watch this stuff. Anyway, so Joel Osteen has a new book that came out this week entitled I Declare. Apparently... <laughs> <laughs> 31 promises you can declare. I mean, this is the gospel of Stuart Smalley. But anyway, I'm going to play for you um, Joel Osteen's interview that he did with CBS this morning. Now, I, I've, for my own sanity's sake, okay, that's all I'm saying. I have got to provide a biblical counterweight to this or my head could possibly explode. Uh, there is a real threat and danger here. By the way, I am wearing my tinfoil pyramid hat just in case today because that's absolutely necessary. But as you're listening to this, as you're listening 
to this, I want you to stop and ask yourself a couple of questions. Now, I will assist you in the uh, the question asking department. But what question number one? What do you think Joel Osteen thinks the problem is that humanity faces? Okay, and what's his solution? Okay, and is this the same problem that biblical Christianity says that humanity faces? And is his solution the same solution that biblical Christianity? Pro- proposes. You, you understand what I'm saying? So w- with that, we're going to uh, <clears throat> get into our Joel Osteen interview. And this was on, again, CBS this morning, just a couple of days ago. It yeah, Anyway, here we go. CBS this morning, Pastor Joel Osteen spoke with 60 Minutes about his ministry in 2007. His weekly broadcast is watched in more than 10 million American homes and 43,000 people a week attend services at his Lakewood Church in Houston. He is also a best-selling author. His new book is I Declare, 31 Promises to Speak Over Your Life. Joel Osteen, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. This is your fourth big book. Why this book? Well, you know, Nora, a lot of people have had negative things spoken over them. They weren't raised in a good environment like I was. And they get up every day and they don't realize it, but they're speaking defeat and I'm not attractive and nothing good ever happens to me. And just believe the words that we speak set the course for our lives. Okay, there you go. Okay, so that was a question. The question is, what's the problem that humanity faces? Well, well, if if I were going to summarize it, I'd basically say Joel Osteen base, believes that the, that all the problems that occur with us in life are problems that occur to people who are basically good people. Okay, everybody is basically a good person, and um, if you didn't have uh, you know, really good parents like he did, and a good upbringing. Then, then you were subjected to negative, or to use the Stuart Smalley phrase, stinking thinking, and and so, it, and so as a result of it, you're having problems occur in your life. Okay, and. And those problems, you're, you're, it's okay. You're a good person, and you're just the victim of stinking thinking. And we got, and so the solution there is for you to begin to think positively and and declare these affirmations so that you can redirect the course of your life. By the way, is that the problem that the Bible presents? Is that the problem that we all face? Is is the, is the problem with humanity that we're all just basically good people that are that have fallen victim to stinking thinking? Is that is that the is that the issue? Let me play a little bit more. Though. I wanted to give people thirty one declarations, something they could do each day, one for each day, that just just to speak faith, speak victory, speak that this is going to be a good day. I believe it sets the tone for our day. Yeah. So you do. You you take us month. Every day of the week, there's something that we can look in the book and pull. You said starting with when you wake up in the morning, when you look in the mirror. So, Joel Osteen, you look in the mirror and you say, hello, you handsome thing. <laughs> That's actually something in the book. But what do you say? You know, I like, to say, I like to get up and first thank the Lord for another day, to say, to recognize that each day is a gift from God. I mean, it's easy to get the day started off saying, oh, man, it's raining. I don't feel like going to work and my football team lost. You know, if you start the day negative, you're going to draw in negative. So, I like- uh, so okay. Whatever you, <laughs> so if your football team loses, whatever, don't say it out loud because you're going to be drawing in negative. It sounds like the that book, the the what is it, the secret? 
Oh, man. This is not Christianity. But to turn it around and say, Lord, I want to thank you that this is going to be a great day. Thank you that I'm alive. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your wisdom to make good decisions. Just starting the day off in that positive frame but, of mind. But what happens, Joel, if, it, if so many things are going wrong in your life? Yeah. And you know getting up, I can't pay the bills. I lost my job. I'm in a bad relationship. The kids are acting crazy. I mean, how do you turn that around and make that into something positive? Okay, now I want to stop here for a second. Okay. Listen to the litany that she just, I mean, you know, I, I, I can't pay my bills. I'm in a bad relationship. The kids are acting crazy. My job is what? Okay. All of those things. Listen, let's not gloss any of that. Every symptom she described is part of the problem that humanity faces. Okay. These our these are the the this is the litany and the litany can continue on because not only can you you have seasons where you may, can't pay your bills you your kids are acting crazy everything's falling apart your job stinks but then you get reports from the doctor you know you 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 know something is terribly wrong with you health-wise you may be facing an incurable fatal disease um friends die Okay, spouses uh, die or are in in collisions, and they either die or they're they're badly wounded. Okay, so all kinds of terrible things happen in this life, and so my question is, what is the reason why all of these bad things are happening? So she's asked these questions, and, and she just came up with you know just a generic list that sounds similar to something she's faced in her own life. So how do you just how do you turn this around? Joel Osteen is now going to provide the solution. Ready? You know it's hard, but the alternative is is you get bitter and you just sink down into that deep hole of depression. So I do think the first thing you have to do is find what you can be grateful for. You know what? I don't have a job, but you know what? I have health today. I can breathe without any pain. Whatever it is, and sometimes it's it's hard, but I think if you can just find something to be grateful for. I mean, all of us that live here in America. The places that I'm sure we've all traveled. I mean, we we can feel very blessed just to have peace and security. And so I just think you have to start. You have to get the you get your words going in the right direction, or your life is just going to continue to go the wrong way. Uh, so you got to get your words and your thinking in the right direction, or your life will continue going the wrong way. So what's the solution? The solution is declaring these positive affirmations over your life. Okay. Is that the problem the Bible presents, by the way? Is that the problem? Okay. Let me, I, I'm going to do some biblical teaching here. Like I said, if I don't, my head will explode. This is not, this, this is not some kind of, um, how do I put it? it? This is not an idle threat. I mean, this could potentially happen because this isn't Christianity. In fact, this is actually more akin to Gnosticism. Go, look, again, listen to this week's episode of The White Horse Inn on American spirituality. You understand what I'm talking about. Okay, what is, it, what is the problem that the Bible presents? Why do you have a bad job? Why are there bad relationships? Why are, do your kids misbehave? Why do you get bad reports from the doctor? Why do people die? Why do people get in car accidents or have other types of injuries that maim them or kill them? What is all, where is all this coming from? Well, the Bible clearly explains where all of this comes from. Okay. These things are the consequences and result of our sin. 
This is where this comes from. Let me read to you from the Bible, Romans chapter 3. Okay, Paul, at the in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, is now at the conclusion point of an argument that he began in like partway through chapter 1. So chapter, halfway through chapter 1 through this point is one long argument, basically showing that we all are in deep kimchi. And here's the reason why. Paul asks, are we Jews any better off? Well, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right? Okay. So the scripture makes it very clear that all of the terrible things that are happening to us. And see, these little these little things are little judgments from God. They are. They're little judgments from God. They're like two by fours to smack you upside the head and say, listen, all is not right in the world. And what you're experiencing is the just consequences of your sin. Okay? Everything's broken and you know it. Nothing works right on this planet and you know it. From the time you're born to the time you die, everything. It, it, you, you, you have to fight hard to get things to stay working and in line and it's just a matter of time before they stop working get out of line from your health to your relationships to whatever everything takes work 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 to get it up to a functioning standard and that's all the consequences of our sin paul again writing in ephesians chapters 2 reminding the ephesians of who they were he says you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, the problems that you're facing in your life are not a result of stinking thinking. The problems that you face in your life, and if you'll just look at your life honestly and not say, well, my life's pretty good. Yeah, no, it's not. It really, truly isn't. Just take a look at it honestly, okay? Friends die. Relationships go south. I mean, family members die. And not only that, they some of them die horrible, terrible deaths, okay? They... Few of us get the luxury of just passing away in our sleep, right? You either go out sad or you go out bloody. And what I mean by that is you're either going to go out, you know, in hospice care, and who knows how long that's going to drag out, or you go out, you know, in a car accident or a gang shooting or who knows what, right? Okay, it's a mess. And and when death visits, it's it's like a thunderbolt from the sky, and it wakes you up for a minute and makes you realize, oh, there's something terribly wrong. In this world, something terribly, terribly wrong, right? All of this, these are the consequences of our sin. 
And notice that Joel Osteen says that the solution to this is you've got to speak these positive words. You have to have a positive outlook. Your words will create the reality. So you, you, you speak these words. It's like magic. And I mean that in the worst sense. This is like witchcraft. You speak these words and your words will create a positive solution and in your life. You have kids that are misbehaving and acting bad. You just need to speak things like, my kids are smart. My kids are obedient. My kids are respectful. And, see, and magically, they're supposed to just turn that thing around, right? It doesn't make any sense. And that's not the solution that the Bible presents. The solution the scriptures present is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, basically doing a mental 180. And it, it's the idea here is, is basically coming to grips with, God, all of the bad things that are happening in my life, this, these are the wages of my sin. These are the consequences of my actions. And sometimes the, the consequences of other people's actions that just get end up affecting you too. Saying, God, you're right. I'm wrong. You're just. You're holy. And I have been in rebellion against you. That's the part that's part of it. Okay? But the solution is not affirmation. Okay? Just declaring words. The solution is a crucified and risen Savior who suffered the the wrath of God in your place on the cross for your sins, not some theoretical sins, but the sins you actually committed and have committed today, yesterday, will commit tomorrow, all of them being laid on Christ. And so the solution is repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And this is not just a New Testament theme. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Read the prophet Jeremiah if you really want to get you know a blistering feel for what this looks like. In fact, I'm going to read some passages from Jeremiah to kind of help make the point. And uh, it, because again, I, I have to do this biblical teaching or my head will explode. Um, let me read to you from Jeremiah chapter five. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to show you some things here. Um, uh, Jeremiah bemoaning the false teachers, the false prophets, the false shepherds of his time in Israel during the, you know, the great apostasy that took place in ancient Israel prior to the Babylonian captivity, the pri- God's exiling them as in punishment for their sin. Okay. God asks in uh, Jeremiah chapter five, verse seven, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. They have sworn by those who are not gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches." For they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind 
and the word is and and the word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Now I'm going to just I, the reason I pulled this passage out of, the, of Jeremiah is because there's a parallel here. When Israel was in full blown apostasy, actually this is Judah, not Israel. When Judah's in full blown apostasy, they had prophets claiming to speak the word of the Lord Yahweh, who were saying, "No doubt disaster will come upon us. We shall not see sword or famine." They were engaging in the power of positive thinking. They were thinking everything was going to be hunky-dunky and okay. And yet the Lord declared for them disaster. All right, let me read another passage from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 8. Here's uh, what it says, starting at verse 4. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. And behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what, so what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Okay? So you get an idea here. There's this ongoing theme in the prophet Jeremiah of the false prophets speaking these positive affirmations. Oh, peace, peace. No harm will befall you. Just the, the God has not, promised nothing but blessing, blessing, blessing. And all the while, these false prophets, you know what they're not doing? They're not calling God's people to repent and to be forgiven. Who was the true prophet of God in this time? Jeremiah the weeping prophet. I mean, there was nothing positive about him. He was, his solution wasn't um, declaring promises and speaking affirmations over your life. Let me read another section from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, starting at verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, No disaster shall come upon you. 
For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Does Joel Osteen turn anyone away from their evil ways and their evil deeds? No, not at all. His message isn't about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He has, he can't, and he never does connect the bad things that are happening to people to people in their lives, cooks it up to their sin, which he ought to be doing, right? God continues, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed a dream. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesied lies and who prophesied the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal? Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. Joel Osteen does not do this. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I am against the prophet, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, saying, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them so that they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. Hmm. That's God's opinion of the, uh, the, the always positive false prophets who don't preach his word and bring sinners to repentance. Right? I, I would think that a strong argument could be made that Joel Osteen is just like one of these false prophets who are saying, peace, peace, no harm will befall you. Just positive things are coming from God. He, he's for you. You're the, you're, you're the head and not the tail and th things like that, right? Well, let me show you a couple of stories of what repentance looks like. One is from Jonah chapter 3. But one is, another, is a story I've not you know, told or taught on the air. Have you ever heard of um, Manasseh? If you haven't heard of him, he's he's mentioned in both Second uh, Kings and in Second Chronicles. Second uh, Kings doesn't give the full story. Second Chronicles gives the full account. It's a fascinating story. Fascinating story. Now, as you're listening to these two stories, listen carefully to the word of the Lord. How negative, how in your face, how brutal, and how harsh it is. Okay, not positive, and the solution is repentance, right? 
Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and then he called out. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You should be saying, whoa, exactly right. Okay. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, they repented. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. That's a picture of repentance from Scripture. That's what repentance looks like. And it comes when a prophet or a preacher, a pastor, opens up God's Word and doesn't say, Listen, God is for you. He isn't against you. He just has your good in mind. You just need to think positive thoughts. No. A true preacher of God's Word is one who confronts you with disaster, the judgment that you've rightly earned of God and everything that's going screwy in your life are little down payments towards the balloon payment of God's wrath. We are an accursed creation. We have to work by the sweat of our brow. Everything is broken. Relationships are broken. Everything is screwy, corrupted, and falling apart. That, all of that is a consequence of our sin, your sin and mine. Collectively, we have polluted the land. And Joel Osteen, going around in the name of Christianity, telling everybody, all is well. If things are going bad in your life, you just need to think positive thoughts. He's just like the false prophets of Jeremiah's time. Now, I want to read to you another story, okay? And it's a, it's a terrible story, horrible story of apostasy and repentance. From 2 Chronicles chapter 31, uh, sorry, not 31, verse, uh, chapter 33, verse 1. Here's what it says. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. 
And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Ashtoreth and worshipped all of the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all of the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Did you get that? He built altars for the host of heaven. The starry host is um, false deities. Okay, he built them in. The, he put them in the temple, the very temple of God. He burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the, uh, of the son of Hinnom. That's right. He offered his sons to Molech. Unbelievable. This is horrible. He used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked the Lord to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, in the very temple itself, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house And in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law and the statutes and the rules given through Moses. So Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. To that, you would just need to say, whoa, wow, setting up idols in the temple of God. Wow. Here's what happens. Verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commander's of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the the God of his fathers. He prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Did you hear that? He was brought to Babylon in hooks. And even in the midst of his judgment, you know what he did? He repented. And you know what God did? God forgave him. And that is just a picture of the judgment we all face because of our sin and rebellion against God, because of our idolatry, because of our adultery, because of our sin, because of our theft, because of our coveting, because of our lies, because of our slanders. You you get what I'm saying, right? He prayed to God and God was moved. Joel Osteen does not preach repentance, not even anything resembling this. He's lying to people and telling them that all is well between them and God. 
sinners continue to not repent and be forgiven of their sins. They have no clue what to make of the cross, right? Let me continue. Afterwards, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance to the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty and all his sin and his faithfulness and the sites on which he built high places and set up the asherim and images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. Interesting story, right? Right. That's what repentance looks like. And nothing even remotely resembling that is taking place at Lakewood or even being taught in any of the books that Joel Osteen publishes. Let's continue with this interview so you can kind of get the gist of basically what this false religion is all about. False problem, misdiagnosed problem, false solution, which isn't biblical. Biblical solution to our real predicament is repentance and forgiveness by God. It's interesting you say that your word's going in the right direction. You write in the introduction, you say the key is you've got to send your words out in the direction you want your life to go. How do you do that? Well, I think you just, I, I believe that it's just important that you get up each day and just declare don't speak negatively over your life. I mean, how many people have I heard say, well, I'm Joel, I'm slow, or I'm clumsy, or I'm not as talented as you. You can't speak that over your life. Every one of us is made in the image of God. We all have our own gifts and talents. And so... You know, Notice, um, um, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, and that image was broken and corrupted when they rebelled against God. We continue. Just, I'm not saying you have to say it to other people, but in your mind, in your car, there's nothing wrong with, with saying, you know what, I am talented, I am approved, I am valuable, I'm going to have a great day. That's the kind of thoughts that should be playing in our mind all day. You know, in the 60 Minutes clip that we just showed, you clearly got very emotional when you, when you start thinking about what you've accomplished. 43,000 people come to your church. People say, you know, but he didn't go to seminary school. There have been some criticism about that. And sometimes they'll say his message is too sunny. What is it about you that you think inspires so many people? And what do you say to the critics about wh how you do what you do? Well, Gil, I never planned on doing this. For 17 years, I was behind the scenes, running camera at my dad's church, doing the production. That's what I thought of. That's what I thought I would do with my life. But when my dad died and I stepped up to pastor the church, I never dreamed this was in me. And that's why I feel very overwhelmed because I'm the least likely one. Where would, did it come from? Well, I believe that God puts it in you. And sometimes it takes God to push you into, into you know, out of, out of a comfortable situation to bring out what's in you. So when my dad died, I knew I was supposed to step up and pastor the church. And we never dreamed the church would grow. But that's why I think I feel overwhelmed because I wouldn't get up and make the announcements. And now I speak to millions of people. And that's why it's easy for me to tell people, you know what? God's got great things in store. And you know, one thing I did when I'd get up there on Sundays at, when I first started, 
I was so scared. I was scared to death. And, but I'd get in the mirror and I'd say, Joel, you are well able. You are anointed. You are called to do this. I just talk to myself and it changes your attitude. Evangelicals are a powerful force in politics. Can I ask you what you think of this presidential contest? All right. Done. We'll draw the line at politics. So there you go. He created his own uh, success by speaking affirmations over his life. Stuart Smalley style. Is that a correct diagnosis of the problem that we all face? No. Is that the correct solution that the Bible presents? Not even close. Um, Joel Osteen is a false prophet, a false teacher, a wolf, and he's teaching a false gospel, and he's telling people, peace, peace, God is for you, not against you, rather than proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, the way Jesus commanded us to. If you're not familiar with that passage, Read the tail end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. By the way, when you go to uh, Facebook, click on the subscribe button. All right, we will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. I've never reviewed a sermon from this church, but it's been on my radar since Easter when uh, Tim Tebow 
talked about himself on Easter. All right, here we go. Hey, oh. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon, slippery one too, comes to us via Celebration Church, Austin, Texas, Joe Champion presiding. What's fascinating about, at least to me, about this sermon is the text that I would go to, some of them, to correct him. He rolls them up and uses them in a sermon, but the way he's able to do it is by redefining things. Yeah, one of the things you got to do when it comes to discernment is pay close attention to definitions of words. Just because somebody uses the word Jesus or sanctification or some biblical term doesn't mean that they have a biblical definition attached to it. So sometimes you have to stop and pause for a second and do a little semantic work to make sure that you're you're that you're dealing with the same subject that you would normally think. In this particular case, the name of the sermon by the way is out of the box. Apparently Jesus came to save us from a routine. Yet yeah, I'm not making that up. You're going to just have to hear it for yourself. All right, so let me kill the music without any further ado. Here is Joe Champion and his sermon entitled Out of the Box. Welcome those that are also joining us today at our campuses and online around the country. Come on, Celebration Church. Those that are watching also by television. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Today we begin a brand new series entitled Out of the Box. Would you say those words with me? Out of the Box. You know, Why? I was thinking about Austin. How many know Austin is an out of the box city? It is an out-of-the-box city. That's why many of you live in the box of Georgetown. <laughs> no, so it's true. Come on now. How many know? It's, it's true. It's like, okay, let Austin stay out of the box, but I'm going to go in a box. I'd rather be in the safety of a box. I would, I would rather find my box and live in my box. I, I've seen it with my family. I, I've seen it with my own mom, how, how she, at, at the beginning when she was moving from living by herself in Natchez, Mississippi, transitioning. Now she's 82 years old, living in Dallas, and, and didn't like the idea of, of not having the box of, or, or having her car to get out of her box of Natchez, and, and now having to give up driving, living in Dallas, and uh, living in a retirement village. And uh, she, at the beginning, like, this was not good, and Four years later, I can't get her out of that box. Mom, hey, would you want to come down and stay with us? No, no. If you want to come visit me, you come and see me in my box. She just doesn't want to. We, we, we do like our boxes. We, we do find comfort in our boxes. And then, and then at times we also find that we, we like our boxes because we like our comfort. And today I, I want to talk to you, in fact, for these next several weeks, I, I want to see you living life, living life, not in a box of routine, not in a, a box that would cut off that, that what God has for you. Okay. 
you should be going, what is he talking about? So he, this pastor, Joe Champion, wants us to live not in a box of routine. Apparently, box of routine, that's bad. Because that limits you having what God wants for you. What are you talking about? Where in the Bible does it say that routines are a thing that keep us from what God wants for us? I mean, I would hazard to guess that Joe Champion goes through a routine week after week as he prepares his sermons and the services there at Celebration, right? So what is he talking about? Immediately you should be going, okay, there's something really screwy going on here. Yes, there is, but that's the problem that's being presented in this sermon is that, listen, he wants you to live your life not uh, in bondage to a routine box that will keep you from what God wants. My, my prayer, and in fact, I believe that it's the prayer of Jesus, that we would, that we would not allow ourselves to be put into a, a, a box. A, a... So that's the prayer of Jesus. Jesus doesn't want us to be put in a box. Where are you getting this from? Serious, which theologian, which early church father highlighted that it's Jesus's prayer for our life that we would be released from a box of routine? box that would kill the life that God has designed for each and every one of us. Uh Uh-huh. So routine is bad. It would kill the life God has for you. And today, I I want you to look with me in the book of Romans chapter 12 as I launched this series Here's what the scripture has to say about it. Romans 12 talks about this? Really? Romans chapter 12, in verses 1 and 2, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How? Um, I didn't see anything in that passage about boxes. Did you? Did you see any boxes in that verse? Important is this: How important is it that you are not conformed to this world, but you're transformed by the renewing of your mind? Okay. <clears throat> now this. So he is equating being conformed to the world as being in a box. Okay. There is a okay. Now, normally when we uh, do critique of this type, one of the th- things I do is point you to the fact that there are three sound, there are three rules for sound biblical interpretation, and they are context, context, and context. In this particular case, those three rules are not going to provide you with what you need in order to understand what's going wrong. So we're going to have to invoke another hermeneutical principle or rule, and that's Scripture interprets Scripture. That's the rule. Scripture interprets Scripture. So when Paul, writing in where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The question then comes up, what does God the Holy Spirit mean by world here? Do not be conformed to the world. Does that mean conformed to a routine? 
Is that what's going on here? Now, if you have a study Bible or a Bible that has cross-references and you were to look in your margins, you would find passages that are cross-references to this verse, okay, that will help you understand by what is meant here by the word world. One of those passages, by the way, would be like 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, okay? Here's what John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you'll notice the Holy Spirit is the common author between these two passages, do not love the world. Ah, okay. So here we're talking about the world, right? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, is John saying here that if you love routine, that the love of the Father is not in you? Not at all. He defines this. For all that is in the world, that is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but that is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we can use this principle, Scripture interprets Scripture, to basically say, oh, I get it. Okay, what Paul is saying here is don't be conformed to the world. That would be the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. These are the things from the world. And to which I would say, exactly, that is what is being referred to here. This isn't talking about God saving us from routine, saving us from a box. This is about God saving us from our sins. You see, you know, what are our great enemies according to Scripture? Sin, the devil, our sinful flesh, the world. These are the things that war against that war against us. We continue, though. So that you may know what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God is. I want you to notice the connection. That when you live life out of the box, when you're willing to live life by the Spirit, when you're willing to live life by the Spirit, instead of routine... He says, you can know what the will of God is. Okay, now, this is important. So he's now building on his redefined word, world, okay? He's redefined the word to mean routine, Um, you know, the the box. But like I've pointed out, that's not what this word means. So now in his way of, he's mangled it. He's changed the definition of the word world. And so here's his new his new definition, okay? So I appeal to you, uh, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to routine or the box, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may uh, so that you may discern what is the will of God. So in order to be able to discern what the will of God is, you have to be able to. Um, you need to be able to get out of the routine. See, there's apparently a connection between um, shunning routine and learning the will of God. That's not what this text is saying. By the way, there's another cross-reference, okay? Written by the same human author, but also the same divine author, that be God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5. Let me read this to you. <clears throat> Starting at, um, here we go, verse 1. Therefore, uh, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 
But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, um, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay? Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Okay. Now, I highlighted as I was reading the words, and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, If you have a good study Bible, then it'll show uh, uh, this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10, as a cross-reference to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Okay, Do not be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God. Notice that verse 10, and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Okay, so you can, th- this passage, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, is a direct cross-reference and even an expansion of the same theme from Romans chapter 12, transformed by, you know, by, do not be conformed to the world. That will be all this sexual immorality, covetousness, filth, sec- uh, you know, all this stuff that uh, Paul, you know, lays out that it brings on the wrath of God. Right? That's what the world is. And to discern what is pleasing to the Lord is to bear fruit in in keeping with repentance. Right? That's what is being discussed here. But um, Joe Champion here has redefined the word world so that it doesn't deal with sexual immorality, the pleasures of the flesh, and, and, you know, all this stuff that the Bible packs into the word world, he completely omits that and has redefined the word to basically mean a, a, a routine in life. This, so we've got a problem here because um, he thinks that Jesus' prayer for us is that we're set free from routine and that we're out of the box. They want to know what the will of God is. I think we all pray that prayer. Lord, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. God... Your will be done. That's our greatest desire. We want your will. But what happens is we don't see, and nor can we know the will of God, being stuck in a box. Let's look at it in the message translation. Oh, man. That's not what Romans 12, 2 is saying. And by the way, the words message and translation don't go together. The message translation is not a translation. It's a paraphrase and a very vile and disgusting, highly inaccurate one at that. He says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're going to work. And he says, and you're walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Do not become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. 
You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognizing and able to recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. That word, do not be conformed, means do not be put into the mold of this world. It means the atmosphere of this world. Don't find yourself being put into the box because of the atmosphere or the culture around you. Come on, turn to somebody right now, your friend next to you, that you came to church with and said, we're getting out of this box. We're getting out of this box. It can happen to all of us. They said while speaking in a big box church. It can happen to all of us. This is what happened to us when we, when we 12 years ago, we said we're getting out of the box. We felt like the Lord spoke to us that we were to move to Austin and, and plant a direct revelation church. And, and my family and friends were like, you don't plant a church. You don't start a church. That, that was something done thousands of years ago. Those, those buildings were built by the apostles, by, by the disciples. That, that's what my own family said to me. You're not a pope. You're not a bishop. You're not a cardinal. It's clear you aren't a Bible teacher either. You went to LSU. You don't start church from LSU. You start bars. That's what you do. <laughs> You're supposed to stay in a box. You're supposed to go work for that present box. Now notice, notice, how is he defining box? You're supposed to go to work for a box. So the routine is, well, an ordinary job at a corporate headquarters or something, right? That's the box. That's the routine that you're not supposed to be conformed to. It's not what this text is saying at all. And what I knew that the Lord had spoken to us about from the scriptures and, and in our own heart was that we were supposed to plant a church at celebration that would be a church that would never be in the box. And that it was about taking people who were in the box of this world and getting them unboxed, getting them out of the box, getting them out into the world. Jesus came for the purpose of getting us out of our boxes. Really? That's not the biblical gospel at all. Getting us out of our routines, getting us out of our ruts, getting us out of the atmosphere of this life. That Getting us out of the routine, out of our ruts? Are you nuts? How can you, with a straight face, say this is a biblical teaching? That's not what this text is saying at all. That's not how the Bible defines the world. It's why Jesus came, to set us free. I talk often about Celebration Church in this way, as a, as a type and a picture, as an airport. We are here to see you connect to your destiny. To get out of the box. How many have ever... To help you connect with your destiny? You have got to be kidding me. What does this have to do with repentance and the forgiveness of sins and saving us from the soon-to-be-revealed wrath of God? been in a job where all you could think about is just going to the airport. Let me see your hand. I mean, you would just go, I just want to fly. 
You would see an airplane and just lust after that airplane. You would just go, I want to go. I just, I just want to leave. I remember working at Coca-Cola in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it wasn't even close to my route. It wasn't even close to the area where I was assigned as a, as a Coca-Cola salesman. And, but I'd still make my way to the airport. If you ever saw a Coca-Cola van in New Orleans, Louisiana, parked at the end of the runway, that was me. I would just watch those people just leave. And I wanted to leave with them. Isn't it so amazing that Jesus set him free from the routine of working for Coca-Cola? Really? It's like, God, I didn't, I didn't come to New Orleans to work in the box of Coca-Cola. I believe you called me to, to work in your kingdom. But why am I in this box? Why am I in this van? Why, Lord? And, and you know, we can all find ourselves in these kind of ruts and routines and these kind of boxes and... Yeah, and that, apparently that's bad. That, it, you, you can't figure out what God's will for your life is as long as you're in a rut, a routine, or a box. And today, as we launch this series of messages out of the box, we're going to be looking at all sorts of boxes and attacking it from all different directions and all different angles. But, but I, I want to tell you a story about my, my cousin. He had it all. He had- yeah, please. Yeah, why bother telling us a biblical story? The brains. He had... The brawn, he he had the body, he had the look. And my cousin so idolized my brother. He wanted to follow my brother in in a career as a fighter pilot after going to the Naval Academy. And and my brother would make phone calls and family would make phone calls. and, And my cousin would find himself at the Naval Academy. And he found himself living the dream only to go home at christmas his first plebe year and he would come home and and he did not want to return he didn't want to go back he had it all everything was afforded to him everything was given to him he he wasn't struggling in fact he was he was going to be at the top of his class but he could not shake something he could not get out of the box of a relationship that he thought was going to be his mate forever and ever Ah, so God delivered him from the box of a bad relationship. That's not what is meant by the word world in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And instead of returning back to this life, to the Naval Academy, and to do what he always dreamed about doing, following in my brother's footsteps as a fighter pilot, he he would. He would take himself out of the academy. He refused to go back after Christmas break. And, and since talking, he has said this to us and to me. It was like I was under, I was under a spell. It's like I was under this trance. Because it would not be but a couple of weeks after he resigning from the Naval Academy that he would break up. And would not have that relationship with that girl that he thought he would spend the rest of his life with. And, and he would tell you, it was like, it was somebody else. It wasn't myself. It wasn't me. It wasn't me in control. People were trying to talk to him. And he would tell me, people try, people preach. Your brother beat me up one particular night. Slapped me around trying to say, it's only a girl. You're only 17. And he would not listen. And he gave it up. And he gave it up and he says, what was I thinking? Now, what was I thinking? What illusion, what mirage 
I was under. You see, we can all find ourselves in a spell, a trance, and finding ourselves thinking in a certain way that it's not even real, it's not even right. We, we can find ourselves thinking that it's truth, but it's a deception. Thinking that it's real life, but it really is death. We can be taken away from the perfect will of God. We oh, no. So the so working at, at, a, at a job in corporate America, having a routine or being in a relationship could keep me from the perfect will of God. That's not what Romans 12, 2 is talking about. Miss the will of God, the intention that God had created for us. It's like we were kidnapped. It's like we were taken away by force. We were put into a box. This is exactly what happened to the book and in the book of Galatians, to the Galatians. And I want you to look. Really, I thought the book of Galatians was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia who were being taught a false religion, a false gospel, that it's Jesus plus your good works that save you. What does this have to do with your destiny or anything like that? It's just bizarre that he's going to this passage. Watch what he does here, okay? He's not paying attention to any of the meanings of any of the words in the biblical text he's quoting. He's literally assigning his own meaning to these words. With me in Galatians chapter 3. Here's what happened. Paul the Apostle speaking and writing to this church in Galatians. He would say to them, these that were Gentiles who had become Christians, these that were men and women who had now become born again, they had given Jesus their life. They had trusted Jesus as their Savior. They had it all. They had salvation. They had the Spirit. They were doing and running well. Nothing was being held back from them. And then Paul begins to get the word that these that were now Christ followers were being told that they had to go back into the box of Judaism. That if they really were real Christians and if they were really Christ followers... that So, okay, let me see if I got this straight. We have the box of bad relationships. We had the box of the routine, the box of a corporate job, and now we have the box of Judaism. we got all these boxes all over the place. Somehow we got to get out of all these boxes. The Bible doesn't use that term, by the way, get out of the box. Christ was not enough. They had to go back and now add into their salvation, add into their walk with God, certain disciplines of Judaism. So they would have to be circumcised. If they were not circumcised, and chances are, as a Gentile, you were not circumcised. You were, you were, and all the men said, Amen. And so the reality is that what was being preached, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Here you are, you're following Christ, you're told that you're going to heaven because of Jesus and His, and His suffering and His sacrifice and His death and His resurrection and that by faith in Him and Him alone are you saved. Now someone comes along who's been in religion for a long time, who's been raised in religion and other men, in fact a whole team of people with suits and ties on show up and here's what they say. Are you circumcised? 
Men, are you circumcised? Have you had, have you had that operation? Uh, no. Well, if you really want to be in God, if you're going to be saved, uh, there will be a meeting tomorrow at Scott and White Hospital. <laughs> or there's a discounted version of that, and you can meet us on top of the hill at Celebration Church. <laughs> can you imagine? And this is what was happening. Now they felt like they had to be circumcised. Now they had to go back into tradition and rituals and laws. It was not grace. Now it's works. And Paul gets word about this. Paul gets this news. He is seeing what's happening to the people. Watch this. Who were led out of the box of the world. And the box of hell. And condemnation and guilt. By Christ and through Christ. Now, there are these coming back saying, you're going to get back into this box of religion and you're going to come back into this box of tradition. You see, everything about life is to try to get you back. The atmosphere of the world, the intention of the world is to pull you back, to get you back into whatever box you were in or whatever box you didn't even know about. This is the whole goal. Uh-huh. So the whole goal is to get you back in a box. Don't you think it would have been more profitable had he actually decided to preach through the book of Galatians? I think the people would have probably got the point much better and would have understood this This isn't talking about boxes. It's to get you to be boxed in. And he says this in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, oh foolish Galatians. Watch this. Who has bewitched you? Watch what he says. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? He says, you are missing the truth. You've been bewitched. Your eyes, you, 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 I, your eyes saw clearly Jesus Portrayed to you as crucified. Your eyes were open that Christ was crucified for you. And that when he was crucified on that cross. As he said it even on that very day. It is finished. The Bible said people started coming out of the box of cemeteries. And the dead in Jerusalem that had been dead. We're now coming alive. And the so they were being released from their boxes. So now we have box being defined as a tomb. Apparently, we've got all kinds of different boxes out there. I had no clue about. You see, none of these are dealing with any biblical definitions. Now he's just rambling. Saints who were looking for the redemption in the Messiah. It says that out of the grave started walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Those that were dead saying we're out of the box. Jesus went down into hell. And what did he say to the captives? Come out of the box. Get out of the box. I've got the keys and I open up the cell. You can go. And the Bible says on that day. Can you imagine? It was the very first place where the the, 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 the the video thriller was filmed. It was just like nah, 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 nah. but they were not looking like that. They were like, hey, we're free. This is the very first act that Jesus performed. He went down into the box of hell 
down into the box of the grave. He went down into the box of death and he said, get out of that box. He did. Where in the Bible does it say Jesus went into the box of hell and said, get out of the box? We've got so many different definitions of the word box. The word box doesn't mean anything anymore. And they started walking around the city free. But Satan has always been trying and always will be about putting us back in the box. And he says, you truly saw with your eyes Christ crucified. He said, you've been bewitched. You're no longer walking in the truth. He said, this I only want to learn. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you did you get into this life? See, now here's the weird part of the sermon for me. Because this is a great text on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. But because he's redefined the word world and all this kind of stuff, and we got like 10 different definitions of the word box, what am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with this so-called preaching of the gospel in the middle of this? What is Jesus saving us from exactly? The mundane routine or bad relationships or who knows? By the law, by the works... Or by the simple hearing. He said, are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to try to be finishing this race in the flesh? In verses 1 and 2 of Galatians chapter 5, he said, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Don't be put back in that box. Stand fast in the liberty which Christ has set us free. Don't be entangled again. With the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, there is now what Paul is dealing with. He said, so if you're put in the circumcision box, if you become circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. If you feel like you've got to be circumcised to be right with Christ, he says, you're fooled, you're bewitched. There's only one thing that will get you right with Christ, and that's faith in him. It's done. It's finished. And what am I trusting Christ for exactly then? To set me free from routine? See, yes, Jesus, he's correct. Jesus is the object of our faith. But then the question comes up, what is Jesus saving us from? That needs to be brought up. And based on this sermon... Sounds like I'm being saved from the mundane routine of life that somehow is evil and keeping me from God's destiny for my life. Christianity is not due. Christianity is done. It's done. It's finished. Aren't you thankful for the goodness of Jesus and the grace of the good news of God? Amen. He says you were free. You were loose. You had it all. You had Christ. You had the power of the cross. You had His Spirit. You had faith. He was supplying miracles. He was supplying power. He was supplying confirmation. But then yet you went back into that box. Here we go again. And Paul was angry. Yes, he was. Paul was furious. Yes, he was. He even called down anathemas on those who preach a false gospel. Paul was upset. Paul was mad. And Paul said, you have been bewitched. You know what that word there means? To be under a spell. You have found yourself under a spell. Let me tell you, anything that pulls you back into a box 
is a spell. Oh, no. If something pulls you into a box, it's a spell. That's bad. It's a spell. It's from the evil one. It's so uh, routine. It's from the evil one. A job in corporate America is from the evil one. From the demonic powers of hell itself. He said, you have found yourself bewitched. And that means to be under and moved, watch, out of, literally, or thrown out of your position. You've been thrown out of your position. Taken away from where God put you. It's that tactic of Satan to put you out of your proper God-given position. This is why he says in Romans that you... So, okay, so God's proper God... Oh, his destiny for my life, right. Yeah, let me read a portion of Galatians here because I think it's going to be instructive. Okay, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed, anathema, damned is what that means. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Hmm. Doesn't matter which gospel it is. If it's contrary to the one that the Apostle Paul preached, it's a different gospel, and the person preaching it is preaching a false gospel, right? That's what he says. What is God, Paul's gospel? It's fat, Paul writes it very clearly, by the way, and it wasn't his gospel. It was the gospel he received. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you. That's what 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 1 says. So Paul's going to remind the church at Corinth the gospel that he preached to them. Ready? Here it is. You, by the way, this gospel, you received it, which it's the thing in which you stand, and it's the thing by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Mm-hmm. So saying that Christ died so that um, I can be set free from a routine, that Christ's prayer for my life is that I be set free from the routine. That sounds like a different gospel than the gospel that Paul preached. It's not about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and a crucified and risen Savior who died for our sins and rose again bodily from the grave. Jesus died for my density, um, to save me from the routine, to save me from the spell of the box. It's a different gospel. So the irony here is, is that he's quoting Paul from Galatians while at the same time having the audacity to preach a different gospel than the Apostle Paul preached. Now that takes some heretical hubris, if you ask me. may know the will of God that you would be in the perfect position of Christ. But people and Satan and the world is always about trying to bring you back and getting you under a spell so that it forces you away from where God wants you to be, to captivate you, to believe 
Like my cousin, he was captivated. Oh, look at her. And not only would they break up just a couple of weeks later. Uh, See, so yeah, yeah, your cousin was saved from, from hell, I'm sure, because he wasn't put in the box of a bad relationship. That has nothing to do with what Paul's writing in the book of Galatians. Nothing whatsoever to do with it. He would find out that she was having relationships with other men. Yeah, that would be the stuff of the world. Sexual immorality. That's just like the world. That is the world. Right. It's weird that you identify it now, but that's not what you did earlier in your sermon. The world is uh, the routine. A bad relationship. No, the sexual immorality she was engaged in, that's the world. I'm glad you finally figured it out. Satan promises you everything. He promises you the world. But then when you come to claim what you believe to be a promise, not knowing that it's a bewitching spirit, Satan says, so why would I keep my promise? I'm a liar. I only know how to lie. When, watch this, when Jesus on the mountain and in that wilderness experience, he heard from Satan and Satan said, if you bow down to me, I will give you, what did he say? I'll give you all of the kingdoms of this world and its splendor. I will give you that which captivates you. It's one thing to get the material part. It's another thing to get the part that is not necessarily the material. It's the effect. It's the look. It's that satisfaction. Oh, look at me. I remember pulling up in college before I was saved. Me and my friend, we'd pull up to red lights and we would take a, 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 a telephone off the wall, we would disconnect the wire and we would have this yellow, come on somebody, yellow phone wire and we would stick it in the ashtray and then we would pull up to cars and we would be like, cell phone. We got a cell phone. We wanted people to think we had a cell phone. It was our mother's yellow telephone. She goes, where's my cell, where's my telephone? Where's the hand? How many, how many remember those phones back in the day? The cords. The cords were from here to the outside. And you had to spin every Saturday just letting those. Listen. But my friend, we would we'd have these cords all in the car. Me and Daryl Day. And we were like, oh, we're on a cell phone. What's up, girls? It's yellow. The splendor. Oh, I want you to think we're... On an important phone. Do you know most people, especially in high school, they're walking around with beepers and they don't even have a battery in their beeper. It's a splendor. So here's what Satan says. I, I, I will give you, if you'll bow down, if you'll come into my box, if you bow down to me. So Satan wants you to come into a box too. No clear biblical definition of the word box. I can't quite figure out what the biblical synonym is. Can you? Worship me, I'll give you the world and all of its splendor. Now, we think that he is going to deliver on that promise. I have another way to look at that. What makes you think he's telling you the truth? 
Why do you think he can give you that? Who do you think he is? He's a liar. I think he will will surprise everyone that has trusted him to supply instead of Jesus supplying. And he's going to say, I'm a liar. Your God told you that. That's what he said. I'm a liar. I've always been a liar. And guess what? He's right. I will tell you one truthful thing. He is right. I'm a liar. And this is why it is a bewitching spirit. We get ourselves in these boxes. We bow down to the splendor, the feeling, the allure, the captivation of it. And then we begin to wake up one day realizing we we did not obey the truth. I was with my son last night. In fact, I drove back from LSU at 4.30 this morning. And Mason and I, we were together yesterday. There was a... A time at halftime where they were recognizing the students of former Letterman at LSU who are on partial scholarship, and and so we walked on the field, and and so we were just spending the day together. Another story, anecdotal story from his life. I again, this isn't preaching God's word, not even close. There, and, and he said, "Dad, what do you like most about being in the ministry?" We're sitting there, and yes, we talk about spiritual things, and we're sitting there. And he said, I heard this question. I said, Mason, here's what I love as much as anything. I love the transformations. I love knowing that we're preaching the gospel, the good news. I said, but here's what I love about being in the ministry. I have no regrets how I spent my life. That I took my talents and my gifts and my resources and my time Boy, you sure are full of yourself. My body, according to Romans chapter 1, presenting my body as a living sacrifice, that it would be holy and acceptable to God. Uh, Keep in mind, uh, Romans chapter 12 begins with, therefore, in light of God's mercies. Paul spends 11 chapters discussing the biblical gospel of how God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins, explains and unpacks the whole concept in light of God's mercies. God's mercies are explained in total, okay? You haven't preached the gospel nor explained anything that Jesus has done for us at all, and you're now telling us that we're saved from boxes, apparently, and the routine is going to keep us from hearing the voice of God, So, and it'll interrupt us in such a way that we won't find God's destiny for our life. What a mess. Most people die filled with regrets. And the regret is this. I did not obey the truth. I did not obey. I did not live out what God wanted me to live for. How many people have come to the end? And where do we find this truth? Sounds like you're saying it's something different or outside of God's word. Of a very successful career. Only to realize they were in a box. Oh, no. So if you were in a successful career and you were in a box, does that mean that you were part of the world and you never discovered God's destiny for your life? Do people go to hell for that? How many men and women have come to the end of their life going, it was a mirage. It was just a dream. It was just a picture. Let me ask you a question. Are you obeying the truth? Are you in reality? 
Are you where God wants you to be? Or have you been thrown out of position? Have you been taken away in a container, in a case, in an enclosed coffin? I want this series and I want you today to begin to say, I'm not going to live in a coffin. Christ didn't set me free to go back to a coffin. Can somebody say, I agree with that? (laughs) What are you talking about? What's a coffin? Christ didn't set me free so I can live. I don't live in a coffin. I don't have a coffin in my house. I'm not a vampire. What are you talking about? Define your terms, sir, and use your Bible to do it. That's for the non-religious. No amens on that one. Christ did not set us free to go into an enclosed case. In fact, whenever Jesus saw coffins, he'd stop and he'd say, get out of that coffin. Yeah, those would be uh, literal coffins. And now you're allegorizing them to have something to do with working in corporate America or something. Get out of that coffin. You're not created to be in that case. You're not created to be in that container. I think churches oftentimes become another word for another company called container stores. (laughs) What are you talking about? Oh, I love containers. I I am a container freak. I'll be honest with you. I think containers. I told Lori, I said, I want some containers and I want everything in our garage put in containers. Everything. I don't want to say nothing except containers. I think churches are notorious for being the original container store. You just come in here. You sit here. You listen here. You be here. You do this. You do that. And then you come back to the container store next week. Like a bunch of little containers. And we'll enclose you and we will keep you in our little freezer. And we will tell you you're really alive. This is what was happening. Paul shows up to the church in Galatia and he says, you guys are in a container store. (laughs) Again, I just, what are you talking about? And then he starts going after these that were preaching this message. He is... Totally tearing people up and tearing the lids off of these containers saying, what in the world is going on? He starts rebuking Peter. He starts rebuking even Barnabas. And I want to give you some scriptures and just some thoughts before we go. In fact, I haven't been giving you thoughts before we go, but here's some thoughts I want to give you before you leave. Number, Will any of these be a coherent thought? Because so far you really haven't given us any of those. One, a box is not for a believer. Okay, so a box is not for a believer. Great. What's a box? You still haven't given me any biblical passages that clearly define a box. Are you a believer? Yep. A believer in Jesus? Yep. Was he crucified with, with for you? Was he killed? Was he nailed? Was he impaled on that cross? If he was, as he said... If your eyes have seen this, you're not supposed to be in a box in Galatia. What does Jesus' death on the cross have anything to do with boxes? 1 and verse 6, he said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace to a different gospel. Right. Notice I read that passage. So now he's reading it, and I have no clue what he's even talking about. It's not really another gospel. But there are some who are troubling you and they want to pervert the gospel. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, I say it again. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you, what 
other than you've heard or received, let them be a curse. Paul is like, wow, are you really saying condemn those people who are trying to bring you back into this kind of religious box? He said, yes, may they be accursed. Yeah, that means eternally damned. And he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, um, yeah, this has got God's uh, oomph behind it, if you would. Um, so again, I pointed out what the gospel was that Paul preached because Paul actually wrote it and gave it to us. First Corinthians 15. Wow. Preacher Paul, apostle Paul, pastor Paul, you're really upset about this. And he said, yes, because it's robbing people of the will of God. Number, um, where does that say that? Two, a box comes in all shapes and sizes. Okay, so if you're a believer, you're not supposed to have be in a box, and they come in all shapes and sizes, apparently. All shapes and sizes. But, but, but here, here's what I want you to get with me. You and I have a particular box designed by Satan. Ah, okay. So Satan has a custom-made, tailor-made box just for us, huh? He knows what box he can get you in. Oh, okay. All right, yeah. He forms you. And he will take you and put you into the mold of that box. I, I, I see it in this way, in, in this story of, in the book of Galatians. There was a man by the name of Barnabas, Barnabas the encourager. Now watch, Barnabas was the encourager. If anyone was down, Barnabas would say, don't be down, get up. Barnabas would come along after the apostles would preach and he would strengthen the brethren. He was, he was the Joel Osteen. He was like, you can do it. Uh, c- comparing Barnabas to Joel Osteen, I'm sure Joel, o- um, well, I'm sure Barnabas would not be thrilled with this comparison. Awesome. There was nothing negative out of Barnabas. God creates people to be like that. How many want to be around people like that when you're down? I don't want somebody coming along going, there's sin in your life. That's why you're down. No, I want some Barnabases. It's okay. And God loves you. Well, here's what he said. Even Barnabas, he says in the book of Galatians, he says, even Barnabas, the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Wow. Even Barnabas had a box. Number three, a box is hard to get out of. A box. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. Yeah, so especially if it's a custom-made box molded to fit your body and you know they close you in on it. Yeah, it'd be, you'd have to be Harry Houdini to get out of one, you know? Paul, when he came to Peter in verse 11 through 14, he said, I came to Peter in Antioch and I, I got in his face. I want you to notice, this is what Paul said. I got into his face because he was to be blamed. Why? Because, again, men were coming from James. That's the same man who wrote the book of James. So the apostles and, and those that were byproduct of James's ministry. How many believe when you look at the book of James, James is serious, right? Well, so James, James had a tendency to produce some pretty legalistic people. So the brothers that come from James, they're coming down to the Gentiles. And so when Peter saw... Here, here's what Peter was doing. Peter was at a crawfish boil <laughs> with the Gentiles, eating crawfish, eating shrimp, eating some pork. I ate those things yesterday in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
Well, all of a sudden, here come some Jews, men from the, from the tribe or the lineage of James. And these men are, are Christians, but they're also strong on keeping tradition. And they go, they're eating crawfish. They're eating shrimp. They're eating some pork. Well, here's what Peter does. When he knows that there are no one like those men around, he's like, then he gets word that they're coming. You know what Peter does? Y'all need to put that crawfish away. You guys need to quit going to LSU football games. You're going to go to hell. Put that pork down. But yet, guess where? Guess what? Peter had, Peter had a whole bunch of crawfish and pork and shrimp in his freezer. And yet he would go and he'd start preaching to those Gentiles. You guys are going to hell if you eat that crawfish, that pork, and that shrimp. I mean, this is exactly... And, and, and when, when Paul shows up, he goes, you hypocrite. You're telling the Gentiles to live like Jews and you live like a Gentile. How dare you? He is in his face. And he, he says he was to be blamed. <laughs> Golly. See, it was hard. So before these guys came down and he gives us more description, he said, but I had to be straightforward. You know why? Because he had to get into his face. I, I want to say to you as pastor, are you in a box? And you're finding yourself in a box, a religious box, or maybe, maybe it's a box that you want to be in. Maybe it's a box you're trying to pull other people in. Or maybe it's just a box that you've been put in by other people. Am I in a box? Oh, no. The Pirate Christian Radio Studio. Ah! the It's it's box-shaped. Ah! What am I supposed to do? Let me just tell you. Get out of that box. Why is a box how to get out of? I think, number one, it all comes down to people. People. How many believe that people will put you in a box? Satan has to have a vessel. He... This isn't, I mean, seriously, not only is this not coherent, it's not even biblical. I, I don't know what this is. ...to have a body to convey his message, and it comes through people. Number two, it's fear. Boxes are hard to get out of because of fear. Because of Not if you have claustrophobia. Just saying. People, thirdly, because of comfort. We just like it that way. So if you have a, uh, like, you know... You know, a satin-lined box. You know, maybe that's really comfortable and, you know, you got a little warm spot going on there. Yeah, you may not want to get out of your box. <laughs> Good night. What are the what are the consequences? How does God judge those who've been in a box? We just want to stay that way. It's also, let me tell you, fourthly, it's warfare. It is warfare. And then lastly, a box is hard to come out of because of pride. Because. So you got to be humble to get out of a box. Got it. We don't want to confess we were in a box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's like the scarlet letter now, you know, scarlet letter B. Yeah. Back in the day, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne, the scarlet letter was a scarlet letter A for adultery. But now you don't want to be caught with the scarlet letter B on your shirt. We were wrong. We did not obey the truth as it was in Jesus. But today, here's the last point, and the good news is this. Jesus calls you out of the box. Mm -hmm. That's the good news. He calls you out of the box. All right. 
I want Celebration Church to be the freest people. Box free, yeah. On the planet. Uh-huh. Oh, not free to sin. Uh, yeah, what's that? You haven't defined that. Because that's a box. Oh, so sin's a box too. Got it, okay. But free to do the will of God. Mm-hmm. Unboxed. Free to do the will of God. Free to do like one of our members here who some 50 years ago moved from the middle of North Texas. Cue sappy music. By the way, this is the part in the service where they, you know, they put on the, the synthesizer to create the impression that God the Holy Spirit is now working his way through the crowd. That this is the time where the super serious, super special, directly to your heart experience message from God the Holy Spirit. That, that's what this is about. It's, it's emotional manipulation. You know, God the Holy Spirit does not work on the beck and call of a, of a keyboardist. Just saying. And he spends 50 years in Latin America free to do the will of God free to move where God tells you to move. Yeah, and by the way, if you want to know what the will of God is, open up your Bible. I mean, there's so much will of God there. You, yeah, you'd be, um, you wouldn't run out of anything your entire life as far as will of God. Free to say what God tells you to say. Are you free today? So I close with this story in the book of Luke. It happened. It happened. That Jesus came to a city called Nain and Many of the disciples went with him, and there was a large crowd, and he came to the gate of that city, and there was a dead man, and there was this dead man being carried out. In a box. By his mother. She was a widow. He was he was in a box. <laughs> yeah, that's what coffins are. And she, she had lost her husband. Now she's bearing her son, and the crowd was there from the city. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said, don't weep. And he came and he touched that open box, that open coffin. And he said these words, young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and he began to speak and presented him back to his mother. God today comes and he says, young man, young woman, arise. Arise. It's time to live. It's not time to die. Listen, when he met that man in that box, he thought his time was over. She thought his time was over. How many know it's not natural for a mother to bury a child? Let me tell you what's not natural. For the father to look at you being buried as his son and his daughter is not natural. Buried in what? Paperwork? It's not natural. That's why he comes and he said, this is not right. I want you out of that box. And he takes that boy out of that box and says, get back into the family. Presents him back to the mother. Get back into life. Get back into the house of God. So now we're going to allegorize this kid's real death. How many want to come out of the box as we talk about these over the next several How, I don't see anybody in a coffin in that, stu- uh, well, um, it's not church, um, in that auditorium. I want you to bow your heads, please, all over. And how many? Uh, okay, we're done. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um. Wow. Um. Uh, not a biblical teaching. Uh, a false gospel to boot. 
all because we're not paying attention to definitions and basically trying to come up with our own terminology rather than preaching the biblical text. Um, yeah, I don't think I can add anything more to that, nor could I endure another second of it myself. So, um, are, are you in a box? I mean, are you, are you, you know, apparently Jesus doesn't want you in one. You, you quick, get out. <laughs> yeah, I have no clue what any of that meant. So what'd you think? I, you know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe at Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. In the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.